Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Douglas Tarola's outrageous documentary, Drunk, Stoned, Brilliant, and Dead, the story of the National Lampoon, is an inside look at the rise and fall of the legendary humor magazine that launched dozens of careers and broke thousands of taboos. It did. It did all that. From 1970 through the 1990s, there was no hipper, no more outrageous comedy in print than the National Lampoon, groundbreaking humor magazine that pushed the limits of taste and acceptability, and then pushed even harder. Well, it did all of that. We are joined today by the do- by the documentary director, and that would be Douglas Tarola. Douglas, welcome to Film School. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. So I got to know how, because you beat me to this documentary, because I would have loved to have done what you did. Tell me how you got involved with Drunk, Stoned, Brilliant, Dead, the story of the National Lampoon. Well, Mike, Mike like putting any movie together, there's a, a, a few sort of trails into it. But, I mean, I was a fan of, of the National Lampoon. I think for a lot of people my age, it's a similar story where I went to Animal House. I convinced my dad to take me when I was probably, by today's standards, even maybe by then, too young to see it. And I just loved it. We went to a 7 o'clock show, and we got right back online for the 9.30. It's the only film I've ever seen with my dad twice. He, he loved it, I now know, for probably different reasons than I did at my age. But um, then and that led me to, to, like, I had friends with older brothers that had the magazine. And that's how I'd sort of get my hand on it. And then there was one store these two old Italian ladies ran, and they didn't really check who was buying what, and I would get it. And then that led to the records and, and finding, like, some special editions they did, like the high school yearbook and the 10th anniversary anthology, um, and it was just great. But I, but I wasn't someone like a comic book person who, who you know, had all the issues and, and kept them forever. And then it was later, a few years ago, when I was at some dinner party with a bunch of Wall Street people, and they were talking about the economic downturn in politics, and I sort of gave my two cents and tried to make some probably Lampoon-esque comment about it. And suddenly the whole place erupted, not in a humor, not laughing, but like, how could you say that? And this woman leans over to me like, Doug, you're always just taking too, things too far. It was just, why do you have to be that guy? And I thought about this for days, and, and I suddenly found myself pulling down the 10th anniversary book that I've had with me since yeah. I was a kid, not yeah. because I'm a slow reader, but just because I kept it. And I started to think about had the lampoon really shaped my worldview in a in a way I didn't realize. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a that's a familiar trajectory. Uh, I happen to have uh, been I caught up with the National Lampoon early-ish, if you will, as a magazine. Uh, and we'll we I want to touch on some of the more famously outrageous things that the magazine did, including the the cover with the dog and the and the ad uh, regarding Ted Kennedy, but uh, it always, uh, it had sort of a, there was a blend back in that time of sort of the the Zap comics and, you know, all that stuff was sort of bleeding into the the zeitgeist, and then it's just, things were just so out of control politically and culturally 
that there's this the, the the lampoon kind of filled this void being able to uh there were no boundaries there was no sacred cows and they were able to kind of help a lot of people kind of cut through it and i think that was one of the things that they were able to do uh very effectively and very funnily is that a word i just made up a word very funny way that they went about doing it uh and then they got into making radio and then albums and then movies and that and that became kind of a brand of sorts but and you chart all of this very very well i want to just uh let people know that the film is done in a way if you didn't know anything about national lampoon you would certainly know some of the more important comedic talents that came out of uh this breeding ground for for that and uh so um, was it was it uh, difficult kind of getting the band back together, uh, the different people you talked to about the, the you know the, the history of the lampoon? How did you get that process going, and, and what was that like for you? So what, what had happened is we went and met at the Chateau Mamat, which is a, a, a hotel on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, where coincidentally and tragically John Belushi had. Had died, and we met with the people that were running the National Lampoon at the time, and outlaid our vision for the movie because using a lot of the art from the magazine and the other things they did, because there's such a distinct look to their art, yeah. Um, yeah. and it's so outrageous, you know, that we knew we wanted to use that. So we made a deal with them, and then, not surprisingly, we found out they're not really in, in touch with any of the people from the era um, that we wanted to make the movie about. So it, we set off almost like a scripted movie to go out and get those people and convince them to be in the movie. And that includes everybody from well-known people like Chevy Chase and Beverly D'Angelo to people that maybe only fans of the magazine might remember as much like a Sean Kelly, Tony Hendra, who people might remember also as the manager in Spinal Tap, yep. Yep. artists like Sam Gross, Gahan Wilson. So we, we really just wanted to talk to everybody about it because people contributed in different ways in different times. Um, the publisher, Maddie Simmons, who produced Vacation and Animal House, um, and then some fans like Judd Apatow, John Goodman, Billy Bob Thornton. Okay, yeah, and let, let's let's start with the kind of the roots. Uh, basically, the, there was a core group. I'll say three or four people that were the the really were the origins of the magazine. Brilliant writers, etc. But let's talk about Doug Kenny. Talk about the people that were sort of the the very core group of uh, of the National yeah, Lampoon. I think that's a great way to look at it in terms of groups. I mean, I'll start with the history. National Lampoon started because there was a club, and still is, at Harvard called the Harvard Lampoon. And you hear about it occasionally because, like, Conan O'Brien and a, um, a lot of people who come to be big in comedy, especially on the writing side, have come out of that. None of that happened until the National Lampoon. It was just a club where people, when they graduated, would go, you know, put that aside and, and head on to being a banker or a lawyer or a doctor or whatever you would expect to be if you graduated from Harvard. And then Doug Kenny, who went on to write Animal House and vac Vacation, or not Vacation, sorry, Caddyshack, yeah. Animal House and Caddyshack, and Henry Beard went to New York and pitched this idea to a number of publishers and people in the magazine business about a national lampoon. So a... Uh, comedy magazine that would be, you know, for a national audience. And they they made a deal, this guy, Maddie Simmons, and then they soon, almost like a Dirty Dozen-type movie, if you picture it, go around and start trying to find people. And that first group of editors and contributors is Michael O'Donoghue, who became the first head writer at Saturday Night Live. Right. Tony Hendra, again, famous, you know, had been a comedian, 
uh, like on shows like Merv Griffin and Ed Sullivan, um, left Hollywood to go back to New York. Sean Kelly um, and Beats, who was known in all the books about Saturday Night Live, is like the sort of first female writer there and did what is now sort of a cult classic show called uh, Square Pegs in the early 80s with Sarah Jessica Parker and Jamie Gertz. And that's sort of this core group and Brian McConaughey. And from there, they go out and recruit people and find people to work on it. So you have this diversity that's everything from these intellectuals from Harvard to people who barely made it out of high school, a group of Canadians that, that like Canadian school teacher that had come down to work on it. And eventually you end up with even John Hughes, uh, who was just an ad executive in Chicago at Leo Burnett, who started sending him blind submissions, and they loved them and made him part of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's great, and and you know, for, just to sort of fill in, Michael Donahue is one of my kind of he, uh, see one of the uh, underrated, brilliant comedic minds uh, ever. Uh, Michael Donahue uh, went on, as you said, lead writer at the original version of Saturday Night Live, uh, and also he's known as Mr. Mike. If anybody remembers Mr. You know, bedtime stories with Mr. Mike or Mr. Mike's Mondo video, which you should really check out sometime. Uh, he was absolutely crazy, but brilliant in his in his madness. Uh, some of the people who came out of Saturday Night Live, because we're I want to make sure we get some of these names out there. Obviously, Chevy Chase, Richard Belzer, you mentioned uh, Beverly D'Angelo, Christopher Guest, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, um, um, Gilda Radner, Harold Ramis, P.J. O'Rourke. I mean, these were some of the best, funniest people that uh in in and concentrated in a very specific place in a very specific era i think you could make the argument maybe ever in terms of just putting together a lot of very talented funny people in one place i i my, i think the, the way i try and describe it to people because people have some idea about the lampoon but i think of it as almost the way people look at the expatriates in paris like with fitzgerald and hemingway and the algonquin round table and the beat generation or for music people, you know, London in the late 60s or right. CBGBs in New York. It's just this period in time where, not by any great design, but all of a sudden all these people end up in one place at one time. And right. whenever a few of them get together, exciting things seem to happen, special things seem to happen. It's in, and the personalities are so different and what they bring to the table is so different. Um, and I think that's that's part of what made it special, part of why they... They went after so many vast targets. As you were saying, like, about Kennedy, you know, it's the early 70s, and so they had these great things about Nixon and, and Watergate, which you might expect, but then they also are, like, throwing a pie in the face of Che Guevara right. and talking about Ted Kennedy having, a, you know, accidents with a, a girlfriends. Right. And I think that's a, this is a component that, uh, for the most part, I mean, you can include maybe, you know, The, the Daily Show and Colbert, Politics pretty much been left out of comedy in a, lo- a lot of ways. I mean, you can find it. It's certainly in some of the best comedy. is still fairly political stuff. But there was something really uh, outrageously, confrontationally outrageous uh, about the politics that uh, was lampooned uh, with this group. And, it, I mean, really, on it wore it on its sleeve. And I don't think you could ma- make the argument liberal, conservative, whatever. It lashed out at just sort of hypocrisy and corruption in ways that— uh, I don't think we really get t- the full measure of today, uh, and they did it, and they did it very effectively. And at times, it upset people, but that was the whole point of it. And uh, the, go ahead. I, I think part of it was is that 
unlike today where you can pick up the few magazines that are left or turn on a, a certain you know TV network and you know you're turning it on to get something that's going to reinforce what you believe or you turn on something because for some reason you want to get annoyed and, and see what you know other people are thinking but with the lampoon every page you turn you just don't know what direction they're going right and that makes the parody effective so much more effective whether it was the the things that they really cared about or things that they were going after because it fit as you said and we heard many of the contributors say almost verbatim what you said it's anti-hypocrite anti-stupid yeah. anti-abuse of power yes you know pro trying to stick up for the person that can't stick up for themselves like right. they didn't want to pick on people you know that were defenseless right. you know and when you look at you know animal house which i think sometimes people forget because of the the genre it seemed to spawn afterwards and some of the that sort of offspring are great, like the Judd Apatow stuff now, and some of it less than great. Right. And so people seem to focus on the sort of toga party food fight part of Animal House and forget like its sort of inherent anti-authority nature right. and some of the, the more clever humor. I mean, they're making jokes about Milton's Paradise Lost. Yeah. You know, you don't usually see that, you know, next to Police Academy 5. Right. So, no, you're absolutely right. I want to remind our listeners, speaking with Douglas uh, Tarola, he is the director of the film Drunk, Stoned, Brilliant, Dead, the story of the National Lampoon. Um, and it's opening today at the uh, New Art Theater uh, and it will, and also at the Lemley Playhouse 7 in Pasadena and the Lemley NoHo in North Carolina, North, Car- North Hollywood. Uh, and it opens, it has opened in New York and it's uh, available on VOD iTunes as well. Or have, have I got that right? It is. And um, okay. I mean, I think it's great to see in a theater because it's, yes, it's artwork huge, but there is something also in there for people that are watching at home, which is the, you you know, the art was made for magazines, and it's not the sort of a flip-by. You know, there's so much to get out of being able to just stop. I've heard people say that they love just stopping it and then studying the art like it was in the magazine. Right. So no, it, it, I think both experiences are, are, there's something to it. I agree, and I agree, and I got, I really literally could talk to you for the next two hours about, you know, specific things that I remember. We, 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 the, it, National Lampoon, the magazine is kind of famously known as uh, putting a dog on the cover with a 357 Magnum up to its head and it and the copy read, buy this magazine or we'll kill the dog. That's one, and it was brilliant, and I use that in invitations for parties. How's that, you know, using my own text? I mean, and it's, that, a, it's a great image, and I think what's great about, about the whole concept of it is that there's this massive honesty to it. Oh, yeah. It was saying what every other magazine was saying, which, <laughs> as Michael Gross, the art director, says in the movie, which is all these magazines were you know, on newsstands crying out to be bought. And this just said, like, please just buy the magazine. We're going to kill this dog. Right. And I also would be remiss in terms of the magazine if I didn't point out that you mentioned it. The high school reunion uh, issue is one of the funniest things you'll ever see in your life, you'll ever read, including, and it even became an Altman movie, not a great Altman movie, but O.C. and Stig's Utterly Mind-Roasting Summer was is one of the funniest articles I've ever funniest things I've ever read in my entire life and I love comedy so there was just so much brilliant stuff in there uh over a, a extended period of time oh my god I mean really <laughs> this is uh, so many uh, yeah so um I mean, I, mean I, I think what what the film will do for some people whether they know the lampoon or not 
is you is the film almost in itself is a political statement, yes. but it's not a message where somebody's telling you what to think. I just hope when people see it, they realize like where is this today yeah. in any form, whether right. magazine or not, and maybe we'll people sort of realize is you know we slowly put a ceiling on ourselves about what we can talk about and how we can talk about right. things, right. especially it, when using humor, which exactly. is all, often the most effective and piercing way to make a point. Well, it is. And this really, you know, this comedic tradition goes back to, you know, British satire, uh, the way in which the people were able to get information. It still remains true today. This technique, this way of delivering information to people, as has been brilliantly demonstrated through the National Lampoon, and even to this day, with the, I'll go back to the Daily Show, Colbert, and other programs, which is you get a tremendous amount of, of um, cognitive understanding when you deliver a message with with something funny as part of the context it it goes to a part of our brain that it allows us to understand it and yet be entertained by what can be often grim uh news grim a grim message but in the same at the same time it's something that resonates with with us and that was one of the th- brilliant things about um the national lampoon and uh, and certainly other people have have been very effective with that but it goes back it's a rich tradition and uh um that that they have they have you know been so successful with uh wow yeah i mean it's, a, it's a, i mean that the it's just a great you know for some people it's a great nostalgia trip and i think for other people they're going to pick it up and it's going to you know seek out the magazine and, and by watching the film and it might be one of the more subversive things that they've they've ever seen based on their age now I mentioned that it's opening at the New Art as well as the Lonely Playhouse Seven and the NoHo um, in uh, North Hollywood. Are you in town? Are you? I I, I am. I'm going to be at the New Art tonight for the seven o'clock show and the and the, introducing the one that starts um, around nine. But you'll be doing and a Q and A with and and tomorrow I'm going to I'm going to do a Q and A. And then tonight um, I'm also uh, Chris Miller who wrote and one of the writers of Animal House and probably the most prolific of the National Lampoon's uh, short story writers um, is going to be there. Fantastic. That's at the New Art, off right off the 405 Santa Monica Boulevard. You cannot miss it. You get off and you head towards the beach, and you will see it. It's big as, as all outdoors. The New Art Theater right there on Santa Monica Boulevard, as well as if you happen to be in Pasadena, Pasadena Playhouse, Seven and Lemley Noho Seven as well, and uh, and VOD. You know, you're sitting around. I know something happened. You can't get out. Go. We want. We want a lot of people. We want the suits to know that a lot of people are interested in uh, this particular drunk stone, brilliant dead. The story of the National Lampoon. Uh, you can go to magpictures.com/slash/nationallampoon and find out as as well more information about it. It's. Uh, I'm. I'm so happy that somebody made this documentary. I'm just a little pissed off that I was not the one to do it. Uh, <laughs> Douglas Tarola <laughs> did a great you job. Know, I got, that happens to me all the time too. <laughs> so, but I appreciate how how much you like the film and and obviously that it brought up some good memories. Absolutely. And I just one last thing. There are a bunch of albums out there. Uh, maybe the most brilliant political satirical um, um, audio I I can recall is the missing white house tapes it's the story of watergate you don't even need to know a whole lot about watergate but it's it's absolutely spot on beautiful one side of the album is nothing but edited tapes of the actual people involved in watergate uh 
confessing to every crime that they committed. But we got Radio Dinner Hour, lem- Lemmings, Gold Turkey, and Buy This Box, or We'll Shoot the Dogs, also out and, on Rhino. And that, that's not funny, that's sick. That's not funny, that's sick. But the Buy This Box, or We'll Shoot the Dog, this dog is uh, Rhino. I don't know if Rhino's been releasing all of their stuff on, uh, on, on CD or not, but it's a good place to go to check out more about the National Lampoon. You know, one one last thing about the, the the radio shows and these recordings, and you'll and you'll see in the movie is that you're going to see like John Belushi, Bill Murray, Gilda Radner do things at the Lampoon that then they went on to do on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, and I think that's fascinating for people. Absolutely. Well, thank you, uh, thank you so much, Douglas Tarola, for being here, director of uh, uh, the film Drunk Stoned. Brilliant, dead, the story of the National Lampoon. Thank you so much for being a part of Film School. Thanks, Mike. I take care. Appreciate it. All right. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.